Um, Jeff is not like anybody on staff, and yet he's like everybody on staff. So it's that perfect staff position kind of thing. Um, I, the thing that cracks me up is we're going to, as a church, <laughs> going to need to offer support for poor Donna. If you don't know, Donna, you can tell by her voice, Donna's kind of a southern gal. Uh, winters in Donna. So it could get interesting. I'm really looking forward to that part. Um, um, let me just say this. We, uh, there's a phrase that I've used with a couple of my friends when you get to meet their wife. And it's kind of true for us. We outkicked our coverage in getting Jeff. Um, there is no way we should have Jeff on staff. He is incredibly qualified. So don't let him know that we know that, okay? Impossible to live with a guy like that. All right, First Peter chapter 2. Why don't you turn there? First Peter 2. <clears throat> All right, let me, um, let me pray. Father God, please take these moments we have um, and do something that only you can do. Take my words and, uh, Lord, somehow turn them into something that's not only helpful, but pleasing to you. Uh, protect my heart from arrogance, from selfishness, uh, just, just from the, the other secret sins that tend to sneak in. Lord, I pray that, um, that your spirit would have control over these next moments in your word. I'm thankful for what you can do, and I look forward to seeing what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, if you're a guest with us, I'm Frank, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're a guest with us, you don't know this as well, but if you've been with us for a period of time, you do know this. Um, our mission vision is outside on the wall out there, and it is love God most and love others best. Um, that actually, if you dig right down to the bottom of it, that is actually the mission vision of every Christian. It's just we worded it that way. Um, that is our take on Jesus' answer when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And the answer that Jesus gave was, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we just reworded it into this, love God most and love others best. Um, this is about to get uncomfortable. You ready? Okay. Because the church hasn't done that well. We have a significant publicity problem. Now, that, that I'm not just talking about just Uniontown. I'm talking about the church as a whole. But Uniontown's a part of that, right? And because we haven't loved God most and loved others best in the way that we should, we have a public relations nightmare happening with the church and the world that we live in. Um... The leaders of the church have fallen into scandals. Many have had adulterous relationships. And the damage that is left behind as a result of immoral behavior and unholy living by the church's leaders has created part of that publicity problem. 
The church as a whole has become far too involved in politics and not involved enough in the community where it resides. So we've brought no good, no value, uh, no improvement to the immediate community where the churches are found. But we have a lot to say about politics. And so what that led to is the world as a whole looking at the church with cynicism and even hostility. So, so go back 15 or 20 years, and what you had was, if you were to lay everybody out uh, on a continuum, you would have, you know, you have extreme over here and extreme over here, but almost everybody existed in this mushy middle. In the last 15 years, that middle has evaporated. Almost everybody is on one or the, or the other end of the continuum. And the church continues to take it on the chin. We have a significant publicity problem. And to the average person who hears that, I'll, I'll, you are the average person who hears that. If you are sitting here and you hear that, the most typical response to that is, yes, pastor, you do have a publicity problem. What are you going to do about it? And there is an ownership that I have and that the pastors have and the elders have. But the truth is, the publicity problem that the church has is your problem. You're the church. How the church is viewed, how Christians are viewed, even how Jesus Christ himself is viewed is directly related to you and how you live. Now, I'm not saying... Uh, I, 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 literally, every week, there's news about another pastor who's flamed out. And I'm not saying that that doesn't chop at the, the root of the church, okay? I'm not saying that doesn't have any or have no effect. It does. But, but when, when your neighbor and you are in conflict because you refuse to keep your pets in your yard, they keep going into their yard to use the restroom. Hey, guess what? That's chopping at the trunk too. When your neighborhood kids speak about you around Halloween time, as being that family that gives them an apple with a gospel tract. The roots, the trunk, are just getting beat on. When your coworkers don't want to be involved in a project with you because they know you don't carry your own weight, significant chunks come out of the trunk of that tree. When your family watches you dedicate your life to the church you attend. And so you go to service, you make sure you're there, you pull out of the driveway with the fish sticker on the back of your car. And you show up here and you raise your hands in worship and you, you might even shout an amen, or in our case, you may mumble an amen. Not a lot of shouters here, that's okay. I'm up here, that's why. <laughs> but then you go home and you're a terrible husband, a terrible wife, you are a miserable person to live with in your own home. That axe just keeps chopping away. Um, it's from a cartoon back in the 60s, but it's accurate for now. Uh, the statement has been made, we have met the enemy, and it is us. 
And the world has latched onto all of those things, and they have become bullets in the chamber of their attacks, and rightly so. We have a publicity problem, and it's, it's our own fault. Now listen, we're not, we're not seeking to gain the acceptance of the world. That is not my thesis this morning in any way, shape, or form, so get that out of your head. But, but their ability to make accusations against us that stick because they are accurate accusations and we are guilty should not happen. But it happens every day. So what do we do about it? How do we live in this world that is marked by cynicism and hostility towards Christianity, towards Christians, towards churches? How do we live? Peter calls us to holy living in chapter 1, verse 16, where there is no thing in our life that is reserved for us. It is all dedicated to his honor, his glory, his use. We hold nothing back. That means our obedience. That means what our... our, um, abstaining from sin, which we'll talk about later, all of those things. We we are giving him everything. So we are called to live holy lives. And in so doing, we, chapter 2, verse 9, proclaim the praises of him who brought us up out of darkness into light. You and I are called to be holy, even in a world where cynicism and hostility is being thrown at us each and every day. Because our world doesn't need more Sunday morning Christians. happy you're here. I love the fact you're here. It's, I tell you, the last 16 weeks, it's lonely to preach at a camera. But just showing up on Sunday morning and sitting in a chair to sing, to pray, to listen to a message, that isn't what the world needs. The problem is that we have become like everybody else around us. Instead of being a people who are committed to loving God most and loving others best. So how, how should we be holy? What are some practical ways to be holy? How can we live when a world, the world views us so poorly, when they don't trust us, when they are cynical? How in the world are we supposed to live? Well, Peter talks about this. So the first chapter and a half of his book, he's been really laying out the distinctiveness and the difference that is made in our lives as a result of the gospel. He's laid out the theological underpinnings of our salvation. Then you get to these two verses, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, and those are a hinge point in the book. So it's been all theological up to this point about our salvation, and then here he hits these these hinge verses, and he's going to tell us how to live in the cynical culture. And after that, he's going to unpack um, what he says in the upcoming weeks, which we'll get to. So why don't we read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So for the next couple of weeks after today, we're going to look at how he applies this. He applies it to relationships with friends who aren't believers. Uh, He applies it to how we work, how we interact in the midst of difficult situations, how we 
um, how it plays out in our, in our marriages. But today, Peter is challenging us to live in a world that doesn't think very highly of us in a holy way. Now, culturally speaking, and I've got to be careful, um, <laughs> one of the things that's been kind of awesome about having the youngins in here is they like to repeat what I say. It's also a particular challenge at times. So I'm going to describe... And let, not going to use a certain word, because it's not a word I want to teach your children. That's for dads. Okay, so the, the rumors about the early church, uh, there were a number. One of them was this. They were kind of like those people. I'll explain what those people are. They would gather for things called love feasts. Okay. And they wouldn't just gather for love feasts. They would gather for love feasts with people they called their brother and their sister. Hmm. Now, we know, as you read through Scripture, the love feasts were actually celebrating the love of Jesus Christ in their life, and they were observing the Lord's Supper together with their brothers and sisters in Christ. But the outside world latched onto those terms and were like, those people are doing things that should not be done. They're a cult. They're a cannibalistic cult. It's not only that, but they eat the flesh and drink the blood of the one they call Lord. Now, you can imagine, when those rumors start, and and that kind of gets whipped up into a frenzy, then the pressure begins to mount on the early church. And then you would put on top of that that there was this this underlying accusation that, that the Christians, the early church, were trying to undermine the empire because they refused to worship the emperor as God. And so with all of those things happening, Peter says, listen, they will slander you because of the way you're trying to live. And that applies to us today. Please notice, it says they will slander you. It's not if they slander you, then, no, 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 no. They will slander you. Peter says they're going to slander you because, uh, if you fast forward to chapter 4, which will hit before Christmas, I hope, um, it's because you're different. It's because you don't live the way you used to live. You don't join them in their exercise of godlessness. And so they're going to slander you. They're going to attack you. They're going to come at you. They're going to be cynical. They're going to be hostile towards you. So what do you do in the middle of that? If you're an outline taker, there's four points, okay? That's unusual for me. I usually just kind of go with a flow of thought. But (laughs) we have four points. First point is this. In the middle of hostility and cynicism, it's not about them. It's about you. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. Not, not, okay, this is the strategy that you need to come up with. This is how you change the perception. This is how you spin the situation so that they accept you, so that they're warm and fuzzy towards you, so that you gain their approval. He says, no, no, no. In the middle of cynicism and attack, it's about you. And how you live, it's not about them. And man, let me tell you, we have fallen down as a church big time on that one. Because when attacks come, it's like, okay, as parents, you know this. (laughs) If you have more than one child in your home, you've experienced this at least a thousand times. Okay, why did you hit your sister? Because she said, okay, no, 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 no. You. Worry about you. Why did you? Because she took. Okay, stop. You. 
Why did you? Because see, it's always them. It's always them. So when the pressure comes, our natural instinct, it's seen in little ones, our natural instinct is to turn our attention to them. Well, the reason is because of them. And what Peter says is, listen, focus on yourself. And as churches, we have done a terrible job of focusing on ourselves. We have been far too focused on externals. Let's change all of these things that happen out here because that'll make it better. Actually, what we're doing is change all these things out here so that way it takes the pressure off of us. We, we, we forget that the world is going to act like the world. And so what we attempt to do is come alongside them. There's a lot of discussions here, but let me... We, we try to legislate righteousness. Now, long discussion about legislating righteousness. If we can restrain sinful behavior that's going to hurt other people, then we absolutely should legislate that. The problem is, by restraining their behavior, we're not changing their hearts. And the problem is the church has fallen down because we are so busy about legislating righteousness and making rules and laws, and that one got through. My job here is done. No, it's not. It's just beginning. You're supposed to be proclaiming the praises of the one who has called you out of darkness into the light. Passing a law doesn't do that. And, and when we do those things and we try to rub it in their faces, I don't know, did anybody pay attention to the Supreme Court the last week? Two weeks? Oh, major victory! And so you get on social media, because that's a great place to do it, and you start to rub it in the faces. Well, you, you know, you got this, ha ha, see, we win. And then this, this horrible Bitterness arises in the hearts of the people who are already cynical towards us. And now, it's just worse. Peter says, stop making it about them. I urge you. I urge you as strangers and exiles. Please note, he doesn't say I urge you as hermits. I urge you as people who retreat into a, a cave and withdraw from culture. No, I urge you as strangers and exiles. That word is resident aliens. It means you are living here, you are different and from a different culture, but you don't abandon the culture that you're in. See, you and I have been called to engage the culture that we find ourselves in, to redeem the culture that we've been placed in, not run away from the culture. And again, the church has had a massive problem in this area. We really like to protect ourselves. And so what we do and have done in history, good people, good men, good women, good churches with good motives have built bubbles around themselves to insulate themselves from the world so that the world doesn't get to them. And in so doing, what they've done is they've retreated from the world. And so now there is no influence in the world of the gospel because we have become so myopic and inward focused. And then we wonder why the world's gotten so dark. It's because the church has turned in on itself and run to the hills so it didn't have to get dirty. God has us right here, right now, in this place, in this time, on purpose. So we must become active citizens of our culture. It's Jeremiah 29. The people of God have been carried away into exile. They had hoped... Oh, some false prophet came along and was like, oh, it's going to be a short amount of time, so we're not even going to like unpack. And the prophet comes and says, ah, no, bad news, you're going to be here a long time. So build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat the produce that comes from it. Uh, in, uh, give your children to marriage and seek the well-being of the city God has placed you in. 
Now, while you live there, you're most certainly going to look different than people that are around you, but that's the point. As you engage that culture, you don't, you don't retreat, but instead you live as a resident alien, the pressure is going to mount for you to become like them. And, and the realization, as Peter says, is you must fight that. That's the third point. You fight it. I urge you, the strangers and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. That is a good Bible saying, isn't it? I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. I mean, it's easy to talk about it like that because it's like, so, so, I abstain. No, okay. He urges you to fight. Not, not just, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with it. No, that's not the picture. The picture is an aggressive fight. That means to straight arm, to hold at arm's length, to, to, to push away, to be distant from, to withstand against, to fight. To fight what? To fight the sinful desires. What are sinful desires? Sinful desires are the things that we know are wrong but we still really want to do. The things you know are wrong, but you still really want to do. Three seconds. Don't say it out loud. What are the sinful desires in your heart? Please don't say it out loud. There is not a single person in this room that's not true about. We all have sinful desires. They're all there. We all experience them. They're all very different, but we all experience them. And what they are doing by staying in your soul is waging war against you. Now, there's good news and bad news. <laughs> that battle between you and your sinful desires is going to wage on until you're dead. Glad you came to church. There's your encouragement for the day. It, it, it's going to continue. Because as a believer, you have two natures inside of you now. You have been redeemed, so you have got new birth. You have been created as a new creature, but the old flesh is still there. So now there's conflict. So are you struggling with yielding to your sinful desires? Well, let me encourage you. If there's a struggle, if there's a wrestling, if you're frustrated by it, if you are working as hard, but it's just but, praise God for that. Because that means there's a Holy Spirit in you that is stirring things up. It's a Holy Spirit in you who is withstanding against the sinful desires and pointing them out as wrong. As long as that battle keeps on, that's a very positive thing. So, so in this world that is cynical and hostile towards believers, Peter says, I want you to pay attention to yourself. Uh, I don't want you to run and hide. I want you to fight against these things. Now, wh why would Peter say, I want you to fight against these things? I mean, it, obviously, because you've got to be holy and you shouldn't sin, but, but there's another reason contextually Peter gives. This is why you should fight against them, because the entire world is watching you. And when you yield to your sinful desire, and let me be clear, sinful desire doesn't necessarily mean it's a lust could also be abdication of the responsibility you've been given. You just don't feel like doing it. So, so when the world watches you, they know what's right and what's wrong. 
They know that somebody who claims to be a child of God, who claims to be trying to imitate their heavenly father and being holy, they know that those people would fight against these things. But one of the reasons the world is cynical against Christianity is because people, men and women, who name the name of Christ, and the world looks at them and says they should know better, Because those people are dancing and splashing and playing in sewer-filled puddles, and they don't care. And as the world watches it, they just shake their head in disgust. They know you shouldn't cheat on your wife. They know it's wrong for you to drive a car so aggressively, particularly when you have this stupid fish on your bumper. They know it's wrong for you to go ballistic on a social media post. They're embarrassed for you. They know it's wrong to cut corners at work. That's just just common sense. But by not fighting the temptation to do those things, what you're doing is sending those people who are watching you a completely mixed message. I mean, think about it. Your, Your life is supposed to be demonstrating and proclaiming the praise of him who called you out of darkness into light. And you stand before them like, man, you just need to give your life to Jesus because he is so wonderful. He is so glorious. He is so amazing. He is worthy of all of your praise. He is worthy of you giving your entire life to him. And then they look at you. They say, really? So he isn't worthy enough of you fighting the sin that's around you, but you're telling me he's worthy of me giving him my entire life. So, so why would that be any different? And so that's where the cynicism comes from. That's where the bitterness comes from. That's where the accurate accusations of hypocrisy comes from. The fourth thing he tells us to do is not only focus on ourselves, not only be, um, uh, not retreat, not only fight, but then he tells us that our behavior needs to be honorable among the people who are slandering us. Now, what is he talking about there? It could be that he's talking about another level of holiness and we're supposed to live holy lives, but based on the context and the people that he's he's addressing, and we'll get to that a little bit specifically. I mean, the the people, let me hear, let me do this, okay? He's addressing people who are working as slaves. He's addressing people who are in relationships with unbelievers at work. He's talking to uh, spouses uh, who are in marriages with an unbeliever. He's talking to those who are being slandered and living in difficult situations as people are making accusations among them. And he looks at them and he says, listen, I want you in the middle of all of that to be honorable. What he means is, I want you, if you're a slave, to be the best slave there is. If you're married to an unbeliever, I want you to be the best spouse possible. If you have neighbor kids knocking on your door on Halloween, I want you to give them the biggest candy bars that are out there. I want you to be honorable. Why? Because over time, and that's what this means right here, they will observe your good work and will glorify God on the day he visits. They will observe your work isn't a passing glance. They will observe your work means to watch over for a length of time, and when they're watching your life for a long period of time, they will take note that you are different. And the successful result is that even though they've spoken against you, they will eventually glorify God on the day he visits because of your good work. That can be one of two things. I think it's the second, but the first one, it could be on the day God visits, it could be judgment. 
It could be that God comes to judge them and, then, and they will glorify God in the day of judgment because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But this is probably more likely, based on context and the way Peter's argument is going, speaking instead of the day that God visits these cynical and hostile unbelievers with salvation. After watching your life for a long period of time, they take note that you are different, and because of your good works, they glorify God in that day. Imagine such discipleship in your life. Imagine the gospel taking root in you so deeply that those people, even after taking shots at you, attribute glory to God himself. Imagine that that is your light on display for all to see. Matthew chapter 5, right? So let your light so shine before man and they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Imagine your life being that effective and, and that pure. The world around you sees that you are taking war with sin and you're taking that seriously. You're the best employee, the best spouse, the best neighbor, the best student, the best child, the best whatever. Imagine if your life spoke that loudly. Imagine if you, or you and your life lived up to the claims that you make when you sing worship songs. Worthy. There is no one like you. So I will build my life. Absolutely. That's what you sing. Does, does your life align with that? As Peter did, my friends, I urge you that your life would align with what you proclaim as you sing. May that be our goal this week. Let's pray. Father God, I'm thankful for these people who are sitting here not for anything other than to hear your word. So I pray that today as they reflect on how your spirit has been speaking to them, that you would give them a level of humility. Father, may they repent of the sin they need to repent of and celebrate the victory over that sin. <laughs> Lord, there's so much um, we could still talk about with that passage, and yet we're going to move along. And um, so, Lord, I pray that as we go home, that we would reflect on what it is that you're trying to teach us. God, I pray that your church as a whole would take the war with sin way more seriously and seek to be the best citizens of this culture we can be. I pray that your church at Uniontown would do that and more. Lord, I pray our light would shine so brightly that many would come to know and love Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.